0: To really have an encounter with the love of God is where I believe shame is lifted. Because when He really, tangibly, lets you know that He loves you, you begin to feel lovable and shame removes the ability to feel loved.
1: You're listening to Altered Stories with Michelle Renee Gutch. Hello, friends, and welcome to my 19th episode of the Altered Story Show, Healing Conversations with Tawana Trauma and PTSD Awareness and Recovery. Thanks for listening to the show. My name is Michelle Saunders Gutch, also known as Michelle Renee Gutch, CEO and founder and host of this Christian Women's Podcast Show that shares amazing, personal, and authentic God stories of Christian women who've experienced God's redemption in their difficult circumstances so women across the world can hear them. Today, on International Podcast Day, I'm excited to feature special Rockstar Show host guest and mental health therapist Tawana clark Shepherd, and Rockstar Kelly Patterson, former Altered Stories show guest. Kelly's Story Episode 10 has been the most listened to podcast since launching my show earlier this year. For those of you that don't already know Tawana, she's a board member and is a founder of Abundant Living Legacy Life Care. She has now been featured on four previous episodes and her own episode, Tawana's Story, episode 12, where she shared with me her life-altering God story of mental health recovery, which led her to start her own practice here in Overland Park. Tawana also works tirelessly to be a voice for all who battle mental and emotional illness. So, who's Kelly? Kelly is a human trafficking survivor, pastor, and author from Rapid City, South Dakota, and was a child when traffickers targeted her in her South Dakota hometown. She became the victim of a grooming process that trapped her in a life of sexual exploitation until she was almost 22. She is also one of the estimated 1%. trafficking victims who escaped and survived. Today, Tawana will be conversing with Kelly as she shares her experience with overcoming trauma as a human trafficking victim and the PTSD stress factors that she encountered. So let's get this conversation started. Welcome Tawana and Kelly. How are you ladies doing today?
2: Well, I am doing well. How are you, Kelly?
1: I'm doing well. Ladies, before you start your conversation, I'd like to ask specifically in this segment, what each of you want the listeners, what one thing would you like them to take away from what you will be
2: sharing with them?
1: And if Tawana, you want to start and then Kelly?
2: Sure. So as I was praying about this particular episode, and interview, the one thing, a couple of things actually came to me, and God tends to always bring them to me um, by bringing specific scriptures to, me, to my mind, my heart. The thing that came to me was that anyone listening would walk away from this time with that double portion that Isaiah 61 and 7 talks about. A double portion of rejoicing and honor and a restoration and even a strengthening of your God given, their God given identity in Christ.
0: I was thinking about a scripture as well. It says what I, what I want people to get in life in general. Um, and it's Isaiah 43:2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And having a past with trauma is definitely walking through the fire. You don't get to go around it. But even if you don't know it during that time, once you have your walk straightened out with the Lord, you will recognize and you will see that you were
1: never
2: walking alone. Amen. Amen. Oh,
1: wow. That's powerful. What a great way to start, Tawana. So, Tawana, let's get it going.
2: Okay. Well, this is just really such an honor, first of all, um, to be able to even share this time in this space and be trusted um, along with Michelle um, for you to just continue even in sharing your story. And as someone who has done a whole lot of story sharing, I know that it's never the same every time. People assume that it's like anything else in, I think, more of a carnal-minded space where the more you do it, the easier it gets. But I have personally and not found both as the sharer and as the interviewer or the um, therapist or counselor or um, whatever it might be, that's not always the case. Um, and so I just want to thank you because things, different things can pop up. And every time you share, there's a certain risk associated with that. And so I just want to first honor that. Um, And then also, I would just like for you, if you could, for those who may not have heard your other um, episode where you shared, um, could you just give us a brief overview first of of your story? With the um, sex trafficking,
0: sure, and and thank you also for understanding how it is difficult each time, and you know, in between times where you may speak, you're working through something. With the type of history that I have, and as long and ongoing and invasive as it was, I continue to be on that journey of wholeness, and and I realize that any trauma. Has the possibility of carrying that journey, you know, until we meet the Lord face to face. So thank you for understanding that. I was molested first by someone close to the family at age four is my earliest memory. But for certain, by age six, I I know I was involved in the ring. I remember being introduced from from the groomer and. This groomer was very close to my family as a separate person from the one at age four. Very influential person across the state, very well known and very well liked. So no one would suspect. And introducing me into a trafficking ring that young, uh, my parents had their own, oh, they were not Christians. They were involved in, you know, in the world in, in the bar scene and that sort of thing. They also had some trauma that occurred a little later in life. And uh, when I was in about fifth grade and so throughout my life, they were really busy with their stuff and not knowing or recognizing what was going on with me. So I was pulled into this trafficking ring. I was threatened to never tell. Then there's all kinds of threats that were given out. And so this ring followed me. My dad's job was with the government and it moved him several times. And through their connections, uh, not my parents, but the ring, that moving did not stop what was going on. And long story short, I was nearly 22 before I
2: escaped. There's some data around what might make someone more vulnerable to being caught up in a trafficking situation Versus someone who doesn't. All of us individuals in the mental health field and the psyche, psychological field, um, you know, we like to gather data. It has its space and its place. But I always make sure that I overemphasize the actual experiences. And you don't often get the opportunity to speak with someone directly um, unless you're doing it in the midst of some some immediate trauma interview. Over time, what have you noticed might make someone more vulnerable to trafficking versus not?
0: I know there's quite a bit of data on what the home life is like, but I I have to say I have also seen where home lives were perfectly normal. And mine looked relatively normal, but it was just, you know, there was a disconnect for myself and my dad. And so that made me hungry for a male relationship. And I know that is real common, an absent father or both parents absent or busy. And he wasn't absent physically, but he was absent emotionally. However, I'm more able to look at it today. You know, I wasn't obviously paying attention back then. I was just surviving. But as I meet with people today, I do see them from just about any scenario, any kind of home life. It really only takes getting tricked because they're so good at what they do. Statistically, they will seek out more often than not someone who has some issues at home or with friendships. And, and that is one I've run into where home life is fine, but but the person is maybe being a little bit bullied or rejected at school, and we all know that that peer group is so important when you're growing up. If you're being rejected, you're going to be looking elsewhere, even if home life is good sometimes. So I've even run into that. So the stats are are fairly accurate, and yet I never like to put anything into a box because I've just seen
2: it cross so many statistics and boxes. That was kind of the, the, the thought that I was having, even as I have done more current research, um, just even getting ready for this segment. And then also having some experience since I last really, um, I was on a panel at uh, one time and it caused me to do quite a bit of research. And then I was also just wanting to learn Because I learned back then, I became aware of the staggering number, the um, amount of, should I say, the depth of issue that we have with it in the Kansas City metropolitan area being a hub. So I felt that it was the responsible thing for me to do to get ready to have people come through my door, if you will, that had been victims. But what has um, surprised me is that as much as we think that we know if we're outside of it, if you will. I think it changes depending on the age. It definitely changes depending upon the resources that you come from. So it can be a little different when people are from maybe um, more of a third world country or a community where, where there's extreme poverty. I think what has surprised a lot of people, and I know I was one of them, was finding out how common it, it had become in communities where poverty was not an issue. And you kind of spoke to that and hinted around at that. When you were in this lifestyle, what would you say was the amount of exposure or, or interaction you had with other people, other victims that probably were not from a, an impoverished background?
0: Specifically in the smaller communities, that was very much the case. A lot of what I would say middle to upper income families, actually, and ours was a middle income family. As I got older and was in a larger community and was being taken, yeah, you know, I was out of my family home by then when things really were severe, was from age 17 to almost 22 And that's when the ring had me 24-7 as far as what they wanted me to do and not do. And during that time, I would have to say that was still the case. I was just thinking back to a couple of the people that I remember, and I wouldn't say that they necessarily came from poverty backgrounds. Now, some of them, I was never allowed to really know their real names or their background. So uh, we weren't really allowed to have those kind of conversations.
2: And that's kind of, I think what I I felt important to emphasize because I have spent a lot of time now working across the, the, the board with impoverished communities. When I first started out in um, mental health, that's where it was. Um, um, I specifically, you know, targeted that community to serve in because, um, of the lack of resources of quality mental health care, so on and so forth, or mental health care that could be, you know, individualized versus coming from a community mental health center. However, God has moved me to um, a community where physically, anyway, I'm located in, in an affluent neighborhood. And it has just really intrigued me the amount of commonality, though, that exists in the causes of trauma, um, and even the reaction to trauma, and the fact that it does not discriminate. And even more specifically, of course, when the movie series, the series of movies came out, Taken, it did, as much of that that probably was very sensationalized for Hollywood, it did shine a light on what you are basically confirming, which is that this stereotype that it's a A young lady or or boy, a boy or girl, who is lacking in education, therefore lacking in um, resources to um, keep them safe or um, help them to. As people think in this very um, limited knowledge way, they think that there's a saying no. They don't know that there's a grooming that happens. All of those things, but once they even know that, they tend to think that there's this stereotypical population. That are more vulnerable to being groomed than not. I think you kind of helped, kind of expose the fact that that is a very linear view of who is vulnerable. Who are the vulnerable?
0: I I appreciate that so much because that I'm still, I would say, battling that stereotype whenever I speak, and it's a stereotype I like to try to take down. If we take and we only focus in that one sector, we're missing a whole other population that is equally traumatized. And and frankly, it's almost like um, it, it becomes a reverse prejudice or, uh, you know, and I hate that.
2: The Spirit of God is, is really conducting this interview because you, you'll say something and it goes right to the next area that I felt like I felt led to, to, to focus in on.
0: Yay so God.
2: yeah, because see, there's this percep misperception that oh gosh, there's so many um, about that that causes huge barriers to proper mental health treatment, to proper treatment. Period. Okay, how how whatever category you put it under? Because there's so much that you need in terms of recovery, in terms of rehab. I call it rehab, right? There's so much that you need but there's so much misinformation that causes a huge barrier when it comes to treatment and services. And one of those is the fact that there is this assumption that um, kind of really helps really, really turn the dial up on the, le- the level of shame. So I'm just going to kind of touch on it, and then you jump in and speak wherever you want on this. So there's this issue with, that I have found with something you said in your testimony, um, and even on the previous episode, and so anyone listening, I strongly advise you to go back and listen to that episode, because you talk more extensively there about it, but you touched on the fact that there was a period of time, well, one, you touched on the grooming, and for those who don't understand what we mean by grooming, grooming is where you are basically mentally slowly Use with charisma, touching on your vulnerabilities, but you're basically deceived into thinking something that's really harmful is okay. That's the best plain language I can give it right now. It's not this, this violent, and that's the other problem with movies like Taken, as much as it did help open up you know it's some attention towards the the epidemic in general but then there's a lot of misnomers that happen so there's not this violent always um, snatching kidnapping etc cetera, etc cetera, that happens and so in cases where you are groomed and you know pulled into it gradually there's a point at which you are physically maybe able to leave. I'm just going to use that word. And please forgive me if I'm you know, not stating it respectfully because I want to be respectful. But I know that people who are listening to this, that's how they think of it. So there's a point which you were able to physically leave. You weren't being held captive. Can you talk a little bit about what happens there where you physically are not being forcibly held, but you are mentally still trapped So that you carry out the behaviors of the the lifestyle.
0: What they use in the grooming process, and and I can't state 100% that this is for everyone, but my experience for sure, and most of the people that I know who have been groomed as children, is there is really a mind control that begins to happen where they are threatening you enough, though you're not seeing. You know, grooming initially starts, like you said, it's it's not scary, but it's weird. You're being touched, but it's gentle. You don't know what this is because you're so young. It's family allows into the home in my case, um, and many people it's someone they know. So I do appreciate taken because that does happen as well, but not as often. And so it's usually not stranger danger, and we've learned that, of course. But that grooming is, it has a lot to do with what they're telling you. And an example is when my first memory of being brought into the room with other men sitting in a literal circle and being told by more than one of them, uh, we can't help ourselves, you're too sexy. And I'm six years old, I don't know what sexy means, but what I get from that is, this is my fault. And that all too often happens they they find the words and they tell you this is love now i didn't really hear those words that i recall but i know that does happen to many in the grooming process for me it was a lot of confusion because this man is respected this man is my in my home i'm allowed to spend the night in their home because i'm friends with his daughter you know things like that and i also didn't know what again what this was i know that it made me feel weird i know that i'm being told don't tell if you do you know we know where you live no one will believe you you know and eventually uh, as it as the grooming proceeded it then turns and twists into very violent threats and eventually you will see those threats followed through uh, in fact in the grooming a lot when you're really little, they'll hurt someone else in front of your eyes so that you know the threats are real. But they're also knowing I can't send this this child home with bruises if it's not family. I can't send them home with bruises, but I can bruise someone else and she will get the point. She will get the message.
2: That stands to reason then by the time you turn 17, 15, and you're going about everyday life, um, you are thoroughly, and so physiologically, you appear to be a normally developed, you know, 15-year-old that may be doing normal 15-year-old things. Um, And so just to be clear for people who are listening, the reason why that 15-year-old doesn't run to the nearest police station is heavily rooted in the fact that they're what I call their emotional and mental DNA was formed many years prior to, okay, where their auto response is not going to be run to the police station. They're so, in other words, uh, you're, you all are what I call that, that multi wounded, you have the multi wounded syndrome. So you've been, you've watched other people be wounded. You have yourself, been wounded you are constantly fear in, in fear um, uh, from threats of others being wounded and you've had things happen where you have every reason to believe that and so thank you for explaining that so graciously and then what that also I think leads to is one of the other barriers in properly treating people who are victims of trafficking because that comes brings us all the way back to the shame, and the shame, is what I think makes you all kind of the hidden wound. You have those hidden wounds, in other words, and many times, whenever someone, by God's amazing grace, gets out, escapes, the 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 kind of services available um, oftentimes fail to meet your needs, but. Before I ask you to kind of weigh in on that, can you tell me or tell us, because the percentage of people who make it out is so low, what do you think made the difference for you?
0: That's a good question. I have not actually thought that fully through. But I, would, I mean, without question, I had my eye on God eventually. I I knew that there was a God, but for a brief time in between when I was able to have a break from the ring, I was, my parents had sent me to a boarding school where they weren't able to get to me. At that boarding school, I got saved. So I would say after that, uh, there was a, there's a lot of back and forth there because I did really struggle with anger at God when, when. The trafficking resumed as soon as I was out of the boarding school and the ring got to me again, but I, without question, God had a destiny and a plan, but I don't want to say that others who, who have died in that life did not also have a faith in God and that God didn't love them. So it's a very difficult thing to, to say, except I believe in a sovereign Lord. And his sovereignty trumps all for me. So what his sovereign will is will happen no matter what, in spite of anyone, including yourself. I hope that makes sense. But that's my view.
2: That explains a lot because I think a big part of what I also didn't touch on as much as I had originally planned, I was looking here at my notes and you had a lot of physiological torture happen to you in the midst of, of all of this as well. From all of it comes the strong indicators um, for post traumatic stress disorder. You've already named the strong faith as a huge help in your um, recovery process. What, what do we need to know? About helping a person who has gone through what you've gone through um, and who is now living through the struggles and ravages sometimes of PTSD. What do you think we need to know?
0: One of the things I would I really like to talk about is dissociation. I think that a God-centered viewpoint of dissociation is so missing in a lot of therapy today. And obviously I'm talking about, you would need to have a a therapist who is a believer. Um, But even if, if they weren't a believer, even if they didn't believe the way that you and I do, if they could understand and more and more are coming to this, that dissociation is a gift. It's such a gift to be able to believe the trauma at the moment. I truly don't believe I would mentally be okay today if I had not had that gift, and and I ha- and it should be treated as a gift, not as an abnormality or something to fear. And and when you approach it as a gift, and um, I'm actually writing. Well, I've written many years ago curriculum for uh, sexual trauma. It's going to get published hopefully yet this year it may be next year but it's it will be called the pendulum and it is on any type of sexual trauma and there is a a section in there on dissociation and I have found when we run these support groups and we normalize dissociation for survivors they are more able to identify their dissociation they're more able to accept it and if you can identify it and accept it, you can heal from it.
2: That's interesting because one of the ways, I don't think I've ever, that's why it's helpful for me even as a um, practitioner who practices um, Christ-centered, oftentimes, as often as I possibly can is what I tell people when people try, well, are you are you a Christian therapist? Are you, do you do Christian therapy? Do you? And I tell them, I like to incorporate the word of God in as many sessions as I possibly can, is what I do. Um, Because I have people who come to me and I've been able to even use it as an evangelistic tool by being very respectful of where they are not, but also my, my core belief is that that is the only thing that actually delivers people from being really bound in their mind and their emotions. So what has been helpful for me is to hear you describe it as a gift. It's a gift in the moment in the quote a gift in the moment because when people ask me "Well, What is it? I've heard all these things and again, we have sensationalism that happens Um in hollywood around disassociation and what what people miss is that It really is as simple as where a person goes When their trauma is too much for them They go there to survive the trauma as a matter of fact They go there oftentimes instead of taking their own lives. To hear you describe it as a gift is so profound because I agree. What people often fear is that if you don't, immediately almost um, sound the alarm or ring the alarm at the mention of the word, then a person is going to uh, wound up um, with, you know, things such as multiple personality disorder. And what I try to very quickly comfort people in this is that by the time someone gets to that point, it is very far from just being dissociation. If you know that a person is struggling with that, what you do is You provide for them an atmosphere in which they can feel safe, including resources, coping strategies, all those things. What happens is that they come back to themselves, their identity, and that's where I go with it. If if you really help them come out of the shame and the fear, um, there's so much I could say about that. It's so much more to it than that. But the point is, there is a place for dissociation. That's, it's controversial for people who are not spirit-filled because they're fearful of the extremes of it and misunderstand our point in that it is a gift in the moment.
0: I actually have made a chart. Uh, there's just this continuum that dissociation happens on. And at the very low end of the chart is driving for the same route you take every day to work and when you get to work you think to yourself did I stop at the stoplights I don't remember any and you know it's just so mundane
2: so many people do it and they don't know it
0: yeah and and so it it, we all do it to some level and just the extreme end of that the far end is the person who has multiple personality disorder. But guess what? If we look at it as at a continuum, that's not scary either. I work with it all the time. I absolutely love to work with anyone who's been traumatized and have dissociated in, into altered personalities. Because with the Lord, it is so easy to help that person come back into wholeness.
2: Yeah, it's, I think it's a gift at any end. What my job is, is to take, lock arms with the Lord, with the Holy Spirit, with God. So it's the Trinity, and then I'm somewhere like not even close to their level, but I'm at the time I'm a vessel he's using. And so I'm in the natural realm, okay? I tell people and they're in the supernatural realm and I'm locking arms with them. And then we're all taking you by the hand. We surround you, we lift you, we carry you whatever it takes back to the place of trauma and you are safe then to reconnect with you and we come then back out of it. And so thank you for that. In terms of any other just things that you would want to say to someone about shame, there's this thing around shame where when individuals who have been trafficked, because there's so much misinformation out there about you know, how much of a willing participant you were or were not, um, especially if you don't meet people's stereotypical criteria, what would you say to people who are wanting to support someone as it directly relates to shaming um, behavior? Sometimes people aren't aware. What could they do to... Kind of guard against shaming their their loved one, or if it's their client. Churches.
0: What I see a lot that is disturbing to me is I see this treatment towards survivors of sexual trauma and specifically trafficking. More than any, there is a treatment of them as though they are not as intelligent. They're not respected as equals and that really bothers me i i've experienced it myself not to a great degree but a little bit but i see it frequently and i know how it hurts other survivors especially the ones who are fresh out and they're so traumatized and i just constantly watch yes when they come out they need tenderness they need understanding. They're traumatized. They're they're in complex trauma possibly. They they've got all this going on, and they do need to be handled gently, but they don't need to be handled as though they're dumb. And, and a lot of it comes from the professional realm, you know, be it um, uh, social services or law enforcement, or even you know even some therapists, although that's less frequent. It can be pastors.
2: That is really, really good. I think that a lot of times I find that the main, one of the main effective tools in helping someone recover who has been trafficked is understanding that because of pretty much everything we've touched on, including the things that happen. That made them more vulnerable, such as like maybe in your case, um, having to um, have your trust in the people who you who were supposed to protect you and take care of you, having that violated. I think there's a lot that people need to understand about the power of the process of rebuilding trust and how much focus needs to be put around that. But understanding that, because you are rebuilding trust. It takes time. And I think that a lot of times um, the, the process is approached with this sort of a, you know, A, B, C, D or one, two, three step process, much like the stages of grief, um, which of course is wrapped in there. It takes time to rebuild trust, um, ultimately even rebuilding trust, like you said, in your heavenly father. And so one of the things that as a person who is um, also clergy as well as a trained licensed worldly counselor, I think that that's also what's often missed. There's not enough time being put into the process. There's this expectation that oh I've I've given you this, we've touched on that, we've walked through this. Okay, now you should be okay. Not understanding that a lot of the context of trafficking, it's one of those traumas that actually happens at the hands of other human beings. I think a lot of people miss that, right? We miss that totally. Like there's so many things that can Cause PTSD, but that is one of those that is a hundred percent wrapped in interrelations and, re- and interactions with other human beings.
0: Absolutely, and you know we say trust is earned, but I even have to remind myself when working with other survivors. You know, I've worked with them for a while, and just because I'm another survivor, and just because. I have walked them through some healing processes does not automatically mean they're going to even trust me. They might trust me more because I am a survivor. And and that is something, you know, that I do notice. But at the same time, they still have to learn to trust me. And I still have to learn to trust people. It doesn't happen automatically. You have had your entire the year specifically, when you are to be learning, your brain is growing and changing and, and all of these things are happening inside and your trust is just being broken right and left, especially some of us, and, and I'm one of many who have had, I had law enforcement that were handlers. I I saw people that were, very trusted, um, people in the community with, with big positions, some statewide, some nationwide. And, and, and who do you trust when you can't trust anyone around you as a child and you can't tell your parents. So you begin to wonder, do they know, you know, I, I mean, I, I didn't have that question as big as some do, but many, their family is even involved and, and when you have all those things broken, then human beings in general become a threat.
2: In general, human beings in general become a threat. I think that is a wonderful way to pin if we, it's so hard to do this, do that with this topic. But um, putting kind of a period, if you will, I call it a soft period in our conversation as we begin to wrap up. As we do that, I I would just like to add that for anyone listening, as we've talked about, um, things that make you vulnerable, and a lot of times a lot of these things are not things that um, a young person can control, Um, exposure to certain lifestyles and decisions being made for you at a very young age that you cannot control. As we have talked about um, trust and how it's often violated, and it's trust in basic humanity, and then oftentimes that can um, bleed into your relationship with trusting um, the Lord. And even as you grow in faith, still struggling with that. And as we finally then talk about um, shame and how that is such a huge stain that is left on the soul, if you will, the spirit of someone who has been Trafficked and has been harmed in the way you have been harmed. The one thing I would like to leave with you is um, the other part that God had brought to me as I was preparing for this interview, and it's the reassurance found in His Word in Isaiah fifty and seven that says, "But the Lord help, the Lord God helps me; therefore, I have not been disgraced." And key there, but the Lord, so that means anything before that is null and void, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. And so um, is there any one final thing um, of just a word of hope that you would like to leave with our audience as well?
0: Shame was a very big thing to overcome, and I didn't even know that I had it, and I would rather say I didn't acknowledge it. People feel shame about having shame. And if you can come to the place of recognizing it and begin a healing path from shame, because that can come both from things done to you and things you've done. And when you've been trafficked, there are a lot of things you will have done to save your own life. And so, and we know, you know, all of sins and fall short of the glory of God. You know, we know those verses, but to really have an encounter with the love of God is where I believe shame is lifted because when he really tangibly lets you know that he loves you, you begin to feel lovable and shame removes the ability to feel loved. So I say, If you were to pray one thing with any kind of trauma, it would be, God, let me know you love me. And don't stop asking until you
2: have the assurance. That is so good because he is absolutely 150% faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. Well, thank you so, 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 so much again, Kelly, for sharing, for being, um, speaking of trusting, for trusting um, me with your heart and your experiences and even the difficult places. Thank you for what you are doing all over the country and even further to just help bring healing um, to people. Um, and I just really Pray that God will continue to use you to do exactly that. Thank you so much. What an incredible conversation, a God glorifying conversation. And I am just
1: grateful that um, we have this time to be able to um, share with the listeners. I really believe that so many, 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 many that need to hear this will. So I wanted to, again, thank you, Tawana. Thank you, Kelly. Um, In closing, friends, I'd like to encourage you to share this podcast. Do share it. We are out now on four different podcast platforms, including our website as well. And you will see the episode page. You will get links the links that are necessary to be able to contact Tawana if needed or to contact Kelly or to read her book or to get all of those resources that are needed as you heal through your trauma. Uh, this is an incredible conversation and I just want to make sure that the right people hear it and I know God's going to honor that. So do also like our Facebook and our Instagram pages um, if you get a chance. Give us feedback. We need to hear it. And Altered Stories Ministry is always looking for sponsorships and ways that we can share and further uh, um, our segment, like this healing conversations with Tawana, further our stories that we actually have out there, which Kelly and Tawana had both been guests. So I do really appreciate feedback, any of your donations, any of your support. So I thank you again for listening, and until the next show, be heard and be healed. Altered Stories Ministry is a new, nonprofit evangelistic talk show for women. Our ministry is located in Overland Park, Kansas. And if you enjoyed listening to today's show, your family and friends would probably benefit from hearing how God works in the lives of everyday women, too. So why don't you share the link to our podcast on your social media? And we welcome your feedback, so let us know what you think. Also, we'd appreciate your prayerful consideration in sponsoring one of our future God-glorifying stories. We welcome your tax-exempt financial donations. To find out more on how you can support our ministry, log on to our website, alteredstories.org. That's alteredstories.org.